what I don't think you're going to see, though, is you're not going to see all the pressure on housing coming through in uh, nominal ter uh, terms necessarily, but it will come through in real terms. That is, house prices may not decline by some huge amount. You know, maybe they go down 10%, 20%, or something like that, which, to be fair, historically would be a large decline. But sterling, if sterling keeps on weakening because the bank uh, outright reverses the interest rate rises, not just you know reversing QT into QE, then sterling gets whacked again. And, and in trade-weighted terms, you know, sterling might lose another 20-25% of its value. Now that said... Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. If you're feeling a little bit punch drunk by all the chaos and the market rallies that are playing out, well, so am I. But I'm joined today by John Butler, the best person who can make sense of all of this for us. John, it's going to be a bit of a, um, a sort of rapid round of quick fire questions on all sorts of topics because there's so much to cover. I can't yet find any sort of common, we, we call it a golden thread, the, the theme that runs through all of these. Uh, maybe you can. But let's start with a... a a simple question. We've seen a lot of central banks flinch over the last two weeks where the Reserve Bank of Australia hasn't hiked interest rates as much as expected. The Bank of England went from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing uh, within days of announcing QT. Um, the Japanese are, are printing money in order to try and control their exchange rate in the government bond market. Do you think the central bank pivot that everyone is waiting for is already in? It's certainly very close now, and and I this is something that I've written and spoken about on multiple occasions this year, that is that we were going to go through a very hawkish period, both in terms of rhetoric and actual rate increases. And sure enough, we've been going through it, but I always stressed it's going to be very brief. I called it a hawkish moment that we were going to reach at some point this year. And the reason why I think it is <laughs> proving to be a very brief hawkish moment uh, is because you're seeing you know, just how much leverage there is in the system. Artificially low interest rates were met with huge increases in debt burdens at the sovereign level, uh, at the corporate level, at the household level. And so the economies now, this is true of the UK, the US, just about everywhere, are so sensitive to even small increases in interest rates that central banks' hands really are tied for the most part. And the Bank of England's the, arguably the best example of that, having completely reversed uh, from QT, quantitative tightening, right back into de facto QE. One of the obvious places that's very interest rate sensitive is the mortgage market and the property market. And those have started to turn down quite badly. Again, the UK is a perfect example with a lot of mortgage products being withdrawn. Are you worried about the bursting of another housing bubble that would just be another rhyme of 2007 and 8? Look, it could happen that way. Uh, I, what I don't think you're going to see, though, is you're not going to see all the pressure on housing coming through in uh, nominal ter uh, terms necessarily, but it will come through in real terms. That is, house prices may not decline by some huge amount. You know, maybe they go down 10%, 20% or something like that, which to be fair, historically would be a large decline. But sterling, if sterling keeps on weakening because the bank uh, outright reverses the interest rate rises, not just, you know, reversing QT into QE, 
then Sterling gets whacked again. And, and in trade weighted terms, you know, Sterling might lose another 20, 25% of its value. Now that said, every country has this problem to some extent. It's particularly pronounced in the UK, but the UK's major trading partners also have issues with their domestic housing markets. And you can imagine this situation where housing is weak literally across the board around the world, and central banks in general are printing money like mad to try and prevent that being uh, you know, capable of crashing their financial systems. And so you know, everyone just prints and inflation goes up everywhere. And actually, exchange rates don't necessarily move a whole hell of a lot. It's just that everybody's inflating. Um, it, it, it could turn out like that. That's sort of what happened to sovereign debt in the 70s, uh, which was going to be my next point, that, that under Paul Volcker, which is the sort of the last person who tried to tighten monetary policy during stagflation in order to get inflation down. Well, that happened when US government debt was extremely low because it had just been through a long period of inflation, of, of financial repression. So the debt to GDP ratio was quite low. This time, it's almost the opposite. We've got debt levels that are comparable to world wars. Uh, and yet they're trying the Paul Volcker method. Isn't that going to end in disaster if it hasn't already in the UK bond market? It really isn't applicable anymore, what Volcker did. It's just not. It, it, there are just so many differences now in the way economies are structured. This includes the UK, the US, essentially all major economies. And let me explain a few of these. First of all, the total economy debt burden relative to GDP, national income, is an order of magnitude larger today. It's so much larger that the ability of central banks to get hawkish, to raise interest rates like Volcker did, to purposefully cause recessions, to squeeze inflation out of the system. They can't really do that without causing financial crises now. And, and, and I think they know that. I think they sort of know that. Hence, they try to muddle through. So that's different. Also, demographics are different. I mean, the, the workforce as a percentage of the population is much lower today. Uh, than it was back then. Of course, part of that is age-related. Part of it is is uh, it has to do with structural changes uh, and, and whatnot to to the structure of the labor market. Um, but so you've got these 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 important differences that just tremendously circumscribe central banks' ability to do anything like what Volcker pulled off in the early eighties. One of the questions that I've been dying to ask you for for a few weeks now is. I don't understand how we can have such a large crash in the UK bond market, to some extent also in currency markets, in stock markets, but, but really focusing on the bond market without having some sort of major bust, without having an investment bank or a hedge fund or whatever it is go bust. And, you know, it's funny saying this now because the, the UK pension funds almost did go bust and they would have without intervention. But I don't think a pension fund was the top of anyone's list for who would go bust first as a result of a massive crash in bond markets around the world? Why hasn't there been a big crisis? I think there will be one, actually. I think there is one that could well be quite advanced behind the scenes already. There have been some rumors about some specific names swirling around uh, over the past week. But but keep in mind, you know, how, how do banks or uh, other financial uh, institutions 
how do they normally go bankrupt? Uh, they do so in a, you know, the way Hemingway described, first slowly, then quickly. I, I think a lot is unfolding. I think there is a lot of balance sheet and stress out there, liquidity mismatches, uh, mature, uh, maturity transformational mismatches, collateral transformational mismatches. Th those words are a big mouthful, but what they basically mean is they're, they're, I'm highlighting a few areas of the financial system that are relatively opaque and that regulators struggle to understand, but can suddenly blow up and trigger something uh, much, much larger uh, than people would be expecting. And I, and I suspect uh, some of these, you know, what, whatever sort of hidden time bombs, you know, use whatever metaphor you like, um, are indeed potentially primed to explode any day. There's a, a real irony here, which jumps out to you and me, because we're not big fans of government intervention, but we had going into 2007 and eight, this idea that banks could invest very heavily in mortgage products because they were AAA rated. So they're perfectly safe. Uh, and so this was actually de-risking as, you know, making banks safer by having lots of investments in AAA rated mortgage backed securities. Well, those blew up. It turns out they're not AAA rated and, and that triggered this vast domino effect. So the, the regulators, especially those in, in Basel and Switzerland came together and said, well, we've got to make the banking system safer. Well, how do we do that? Well, we ensure that they own lots of government bonds because government bonds are very safe. Well, now government bonds are the things that have blown the, the asset that have blown up in financial markets. They're down more than stocks in a lot of a lot of countries. It still mystifies me that we haven't had a, a banking crisis as a result of that. Do you think Credit Suisse might be on the verge? Are you worried about Credit Suisse? Uh, they are on the short list of uh, systemically important financial institutions. Uh, that that could go down as a result of what is now happening. Uh, now, that said, I do believe to, that regulators have learned some lessons post-2008, and the Bank of England has already demonstrated one of those. That is, that it is ready to step in to take on to its balance sheet any portion of government bonds it deems is required to prevent just a complete run on the system. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, someone, uh, a major financial institution may well fail here, but they'll fail in a way that will result in their assets being, well, they're going to say temporarily, I think it's permanently moved to the central bank's balance sheet, while they then are possibly eventually moved into some government-created bad debt workout facility along the lines of what the United States did uh, following the savings and loan crisis when they created the so-called Resolution Trust Corporation, which was basically a place where old bad uh, savings and loan debts went to die. Okay. Um, and, and they were illiquid and didn't really trade. Uh, so anyway, it could be something like that. So the, the potential for a Lehman blow up is still there. Absolutely. But central banks will be that much quicker to react, that much quicker to take things onto their own balance sheet if necessary. And of course, that just implies that the inflationary pressure in the system will not be going away anytime soon. Yeah, the Irish did that, that same model as well. They've moved all the bad assets to an entity that was effectively government backed. Do you think, well, there's a bit of a paradox here, right? Because the central bankers need to bring inflation down. But the only way I can see that happening is with quite a bad financial crisis. And yet they can't allow a financial crisis to actually occur. So 
it's uh, I mean the the as you were just implying the tendency is going to be towards actually bringing back inflation before a bad enough financial crisis to bring down inflation actually occurs. Look, there, there, there's no free lunch here. Uh, I've used this metaphor before or, or mixed metaphor. You know, central bankers have been walking a tightrope backwards into a corner. And, 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 the, and they're pretty much there now, right? They're pretty much there. There's just no other way to do it. And, and so what we're, uh, my primary scenario here is that they will allow the inflationary pressure to remain and only very slowly dissipate over a multi-year period of time. And they'll try to still manage that process without losing even more credibility than they already have. Maybe they can pull it off. It, it would be yet another example of muddling through. We've seen plenty of muddling through in modern economic policy. And indeed, historically, you've seen a lot of it, too. Um, but we're, this is going to be one of those episodes if they can pull it off. And they may not be able to pull it off. Uh, there may be uh, some some currency disputes regarding who's devaluing versus whom. There may be some trade wars brewing uh, where people try to protect market share through tariffs, quotas, you name it. A lot of this stuff could be coming back. Capital controls might also be coming back for countries that decide their currencies are becoming too weak. You know, all of this stuff is hugely disruptive for the global economy, hugely disruptive of international trade and hugely damaging for corporate profits. I mean, good luck modeling that, right? If you're an equity analyst, good luck modeling uh, what trade wars and, and uh, capital controls are going to do to corporate profits. I mean, they're, they're going to be very, very negative, but you know, good luck putting a number on that. We just know it's bad news. And sadly, I see a lot of this stuff on the horizon. We need to add a, a lion cage to your, your uh, tightrope metaphor somehow. Um, you mentioned there, or you're alluding to the, the unholy trinity, the trilemma, the idea that a, a government or a country can't have at the same time independent monetary policy, a picked exchange rate and free capital flows. Is Japan violating or, or you know, trying to violate the, uh, that, that unholy trinity? Japan is in a real bind here because the think uh, Japan is, is is a huge energy importer, uh, and and this this can also be said of, of Germany. But let's let's focus on Japan. Um, and as a result, right, they are they're you know they're not a price setter for energy; they're a price taker. They just have to pay whatever the global price is, and 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 that's a price that's a real price, real barrels of oil or real you know gas, whatever it is they're importing, and 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 so uh, devaluing the yen doesn't solve that problem because it, it doesn't necessarily make your exports that much more competitive if your import costs are going up so much. So margins get squeezed, that hurts corporate profitability, that, that hurts future private investment plans, and you get into a vicious circle. And I mean, ultimately you hope, right, that, that you reach a new equilibrium somewhere. Uh, but Japan hasn't done that yet. And so they're, they're really in a bind. This elevated level of energy prices is potentially re terminal, practically, regarding the export-led growth models that Japan and Germany have followed over the past couple of decades. And so they are going to have to be looking for ways to get energy prices down. But as we know, there's no economic solution to that. There are only political solutions to that. And that's going to remain elusive with both the United States and Russia digging in their heels over Ukraine, very clearly. This, this is not going to be solved anytime soon. It seems that Japanese are content to sort of ignore 
the uh, the prohibitions on on Russian energy, but the, let's not go there. <laughs> um, you were very successful at predicting the inflationary spike we've seen very shortly before it started to play out in consumer prices. And the way you did that, as we've talked about in the past, is you saw the producer prices were on the move. So the prices that companies were paying in order to get the goods they need to manufacture things were rising and they were going to pass on that cost in time. What we have happening now in Europe is a, a vaguely similar sort of phenomenon where the energy crisis is behind a lot of the inflationary pressure. And what the Europeans have said, well, if we just reduce our energy usage, we'll reduce the inflationary problem. The issue is that they've created a different source of, uh, of inflationary pressure instead because they've shut down their industry in order to reduce their energy consumption, which just creates shortages of different goods, of the industrial goods that they were producing, fertilizers, the key one, um, aluminium is another important one. Are you worried that the US and the EU or the Eurozone inflation rates are going to diverge over the next few months where things get worse in Europe and inflation falls in the US? That is a possibility. And let's face it, the dollar has been very strong versus all major currencies, including the euro, all year. Uh, the US is basically energy self-sufficient, uh, whereas Europe, <laughs> as we know, is, is obviously not. And, and so Europe is going to face this negative supply shock uh, more acutely uh, as long as this situation remains. That is, as you say they can go ahead and slow down the factories. But of course, that's a negative supply shock. So it, you know, what, regardless of whether the shock originates with energy uh, or occurs within the supply chain itself, the net result is still a supply shock being passed through to the consumer that will show up in uh, an elevated level of consumer prices relative to output. That is stagflation, if you want to call it that. So the U.S. does have an advantage here. Now, that said, again, um, that the dollar has already gone a long way. It's already strengthened an awful lot. You know, the U.S. has its own issues uh, to contend with. Its own economy has already slipped into recession, as we can see in the data. So, uh, it, it, but it, it could. It, the dollar could continue to strengthen if, and it's a big if, energy prices do not come back down if there is not some sort of resolution to the political issues keeping them elevated at present. My Japanese parents-in-law are coming to visit soon. They've just got a load of money out of Japan and bought a house or a flat in Barcelona. It seems like it's out of the frying pan into the fire. Which one's better, the euro or the yen? That's a very difficult one. and, and But I do have an answer for it. And it, it has to do with the, the whole way the euro area is structured. And what I see as, and this was the case before Ukraine, uh, a growing rift between uh, Germany, a handful of other uh, Northern European countries, uh, and the so-called Club Med countries, such as Spain and Italy. This, uh, and you see it showing up in the Target 2 balances, but you also see it now uh, in actual political disputes regarding what the ECB is trying to do, which is to uh, get pretty much carte blanche for itself to be able to subsidize uh, large Italian and Spanish debt at the expense uh, of everyone uh, through uh, inflation. 
And inflation is now a big political issue uh, in the euro area and in Germany specifically. Now, that said, everyone's associating it now with the war in Ukraine. But oddly enough, this was already happening before that war broke out. And so even if we do, and I hope we do, come to a resolution of what's happening in Ukraine before too much longer, this underlying structural inflation problem and imbalances within the euro area aren't going away. And so the euro area will need to be uh, restructured in some way. That would be hugely disruptive for the euro area economy, a huge negative shock in so many ways. Japan doesn't have that problem. They have other problems, but they don't have that problem. It's not as if the country's at risk of breaking up. Okay. Um, so I actually think that I have a lot of uh, admiration for the Japanese economy to deal with huge challenges. Look how they deal with natural disasters. Look how they rebuilt after the Second World War. Look how they remained competitive economically, globally, even as they became a very wealthy country. So I think Japan will eventually get through this, but they desperately do need to get through the energy price shock before we see that Japan is still a, a competitive economy on the world stage. You've got an opinion on everything. Um, if this was Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, you would have won by now, John. Thanks very much for joining us and to everyone at home. Thanks for watching. Thank you, Nick.